Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on the government's failed Rwanda policy. Sean Walker travels to Kiev to meet Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska. And finally, Daniel Lavelle investigates whether you can scare yourself happy. Just a heads up, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now. This week, the first flight scheduled to take asylum seekers to Rwanda was cancelled after multiple legal challenges. But did the government ever expect it to take off? Or was it all a show? Marina Hyde questions whether Downing Street is now making policy, not based on what it thinks is best for the country, but simply to annoy all the right people. Read by Colleen Prendergast. When future archaeologists dive beneath the risen sea level down to our current layer of UK civilization, they will excavate a vast relic network of cell phones and struggle to make sense of us. What could these mysterious doomed ancients have been thinking, they will wonder. How can their impenetrably bizarre or ineffective decisions be explained, given that they have no obvious utility and cannot even conceivably be described as beautiful? But eventually, someone will discover a tablet, either stone or iPad, inscribed into which are the words, This will annoy all the right people. Aha, the intrepid anthropologist will breathe. The key to all mythologies we meet at last. This will annoy all the right people. With those seven words, things will at last become clear. Think of them as the Rosetta Stone of all our useless decisions, which, increasingly, is most of them. It's not just politics where annoying all the right people has been apotheosized, though under a range of global populists it inescapably has been. 
Donald Trump's promise to build a wall between the US and Mexico was a prime instance of annoying all the right people, with those wondering why the structure was failing to materialise continually scoffed at by various of his elite supporters. Didn't they know it was just a metaphor? The reality-bending forced an update on an old political adage. Where once you campaigned in poetry and governed in prose, now you campaigned in bombast and governed in metaphor. If only those Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol had understood their adorably naive semantic error. But, of course, the point about annoying all the right people is that it can only be thought of as a policy platform by the hopelessly jejune, i.e. the ordinary people who put the populist in question in power, but whom all populists secretly hate. Annoying all the right people isn't a programme for government, it's just a political aesthetic, like the paranoid style or a sort of fuck-you mood board. And it has spread beyond the confines of conventional politics. Annoying all the right people has become the knotweed of public life, deleteriously underpinning everything from the establishment of TV news channels to the spectacle of grown-ups acting out for clicks on social media. Culture wars increasingly feel less about the humans over whose future they were once supposedly fought and more about the brand positioning of those doing the fighting. The government's Rwanda policy is a prime example of the annoying all-the-right-people aesthetic. On Tuesday night, the first flight scheduled to take asylum seekers to Rwanda was cancelled before takeoff, after multiple legal challenges. Front of house, we were shown Boris Johnson opening the cabinet meeting with a speech-effect speech about his plan-effect plan. Behold, the king of Twatlantis, acting like he's at the peak of his hubristic powers. Backstage, insiders took something of a different line. As a source close to government thinking told the new statesman, they never expected the flight to take off. The point of the exercise was to create dividing lines ahead of the next election, which is going to be fought, in part, on a manifesto pledge to leave the European Court of Human Rights and repeal the Human Rights Act. Righto. More dividing lines, just what the doctor ordered. The Rwanda deportation plan is reported to have been most enthusiastically seized upon by third or fourth generation Johnson strategist David Canzini, of whom we'll no doubt be hearing more and more in the run-up to said election. I learn he was born in Kenya, though unlike Barack Obama, has yet to be described as part Kenyan by Boris Johnson. Downing Street appears to imagine dividing lines to amount to both a political philosophy and a plan for growth. Despite the mad appearance of activity, Johnson's government exists in a weird form of stasis, perpetually campaigning but never actually achieving anything. It is the Zeno's arrow of getting stuff done. Last week, I saw a Tory MP give a candid, off-the-record quote about trying to win the next election, with no word as to why. 
in its current incarnation, his party wins power, then seems to spend 90% of the time politicking over how to next win power. Such a level of inaction requires a constant supply of enemies. Inevitably, the EU is still one of these foes, despite the oven-ready Brexit. But the Rwanda pseudo-policy has allowed the creation of a new enemy for the government, the left-wing lawyers who stop it being world-beating. Plus, every time you mention left-wing lawyers, you do a little tacit drive-by on Keir Starmer too. So it's a two-for-one. But is it what you'd call government? Much of what is done feels more like theatre or filmmaking. Several hundred thousand pounds were spent hiring a plane that, as airily expected by those who had hired it, did not take off, and consequently might be best regarded as an expensive stage prop. What a troubled, over-budget production we are watching, in which those holding the levers of power have no real idea how to use them. To disguise this, the government is forever seeking only to define itself witheringly against something else. In many ways, this defining becomes the policy. But it changes next to nothing, because annoying all the right people is what you do when you can't think of anything better to do. It is ideas for people who don't have any ideas. Unfortunately, the UK urgently needs concrete ideas to thrive and, ultimately, to survive. Archaeologists constantly point to subsistence failure as behind various collapses, and even Johnson's circuses will ultimately require an accompaniment of bread. That was From the Government That Achieves Next to Nothing... It's the Rwanda Flight to Nowhere by Marina Hyde. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Next, Sean Walker travels to Kyiv to meet Ukrainian First Lady Elena Zelenska, who opens up about the pressures of her position, her family's experience of the war, and how she has coped with being labelled as the Russians' target number two. Read by Emma Stannard. In the early hours of 24th of February, Elena Zelenska became aware of the sound of muffled booms somewhere in the distance. As she drifted towards wakefulness, she realised the sounds she was registering could not be fireworks. Her eyes snapped open. She discovered she was alone in the bed. She jumped up and hurried to the next room, where she found her husband, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, already dressed for work in a suit and tie. What's going on? she asked him. It started, he told her. I had the feeling I was inside a parallel reality that I was dreaming, Zelenska says, describing the moment when normal life was interrupted for her family and her country. Soon afterwards, her husband left for the presidential compound in the centre of Kyiv, to chair a Security Council meeting that would decide on the initial response to Vladimir Putin's shocking full-scale invasion of Ukraine. He told his wife she should wait for him to call later in the day with instructions. Left alone, she went to check on the couple's two children, 
nine-year-old Kirillo and 17-year-old Alexandra. They were already awake and dressed, and they seemed to understand what was happening. Zelenska began to throw together a suitcase of possessions, scurrying down to the basement with her children and their security detail every time the booms got too close. At one point, she was standing on the first floor of the presidential villa and looking out of the window when a fighter jet screamed by, loud and low. She wasn't sure if it was Ukrainian or Russian. It was a surreal feeling, like I was playing a computer game and had to pass certain levels to find myself back at home. But I was also keeping it together, and I had this weird smile on my face all day because I was trying not to show the children panic. We just followed the orders of security, went where we were told, she says. In the evening, she was able to see her husband again, briefly, though she won't say where. He told her that she and the children would be taken to a safe place. They hugged, but there was no time for tears or sentimentality. It was only later that she allowed the thought to creep in. She might never see him again. It's three months later when I meet Zelenska. In Ukrainian, surname endings differ for men and women. And ask her to recount those terrifying first few hours. We are in an office inside the presidential compound in central Kyiv. To get there, I have to pass several checkpoints and security posts. And once inside, I am searched multiple times. The windows are piled high with sandbags. Shadowy figures scurry through the walkways. Small lamps on the floor throw weak light onto the blue carpets that stretch along the corridors. Still, there is not the same level of tension as during the first weeks of the war. The Russian retreat from the outskirts of Kyiv has made the Ukrainian capital a much more relaxed place. Outside, young couples stroll in the city centre in the early summer sunshine. Cafes are open and the evening curfew has been extended to 11pm. Air raid sirens still sound, but most people ignore them. The karma situation has also meant Zelenska has been able to return to the capital, at least for a period, but her security guards remain on edge. I'm asked to leave my mobile phone in the anteroom and I'm searched thoroughly once again before being ushered into the room where she is waiting. A bodyguard in military fatigues accompanies me into the room and sits glowering in the corner throughout the interview. Zelenska greets me with a gentle handshake. Thank you for coming, she says in English, before switching into Ukrainian. Back in those first days of the war, there was a terrifying sense that anything was possible. As missiles rained down on targets across the country and Russian troops advanced on Kyiv from three directions. According to available intelligence, the enemy marked me as target number one and my family as target number two. President Zelensky said in one of his early video addresses. His wife does not know what intelligence the assessment was based on, and Zelensky never told her about any specific threat to the family. She tries not to think too much about it, otherwise I'll get paranoid. But she was alert to the possibilities that seizing the first family could provide the Russians. 
of course it's possible to exert pressure on the president through his family, and I wouldn't want him to have to make the choice between his family and his responsibilities as president. So if there is even the smallest chance of that, you have to remove it, she says. She speaks in a soft voice, with carefully enunciated consonants, punctuating her answers with deep sighs. So while Zelensky ignored suggestions from Western leaders that he should leave Kyiv and set up a government in exile in Western Ukraine or Poland, he did send Zelensky and the children away to relative safety. She is understandably cagey about exactly where she spent those two months. The less I say, the safer I am. But says she moved regularly and insists she remained inside Ukraine the whole time. At times, she could hear the air raid sirens that have become the background soundtrack for many millions of Ukrainian lives. Oleksandra and Kirillo never left her side. The children were ideal, she says. Usually you have to tell them things a million times, but that first day they did everything super quickly and obediently. We were in some kind of changed state, of course, Then, afterwards, we had this long waiting period. We were watching the news, waiting for calls. We had the television on the whole time. Aha, so you did have a television, I say. I see you're trying to get some clues out of me. Yes, we had a television. I wasn't underground or underwater, she says with a smile. One night early in the war, when the Russians were trying to storm Kiev. She saw footage on television of a Russian tank in the Obolon district, outside a block where she used to live. Other evenings, she would see the video clips of her husband, no longer in the civilian suit he was wearing when she last saw him, giving stirring addresses to the Ukrainian people and appealing to international leaders. I could see that it was all very emotional for him, she says. Knowing him, I think he used all the emotional levers he could to get the message across. But it wasn't manipulation, it was genuine. He would really have these feelings, for sure. Sometimes she was able to speak to her husband, though not on any of her normal devices. She was told by the security detail to leave behind all her electronics and not to log into any of her social networks. The days were long and lonely. She passed the time by helping Kirillo with his schoolwork. She tried to map out daily schedules to keep herself occupied. You have to plan things for your hours and minutes to make sure you have stuff to do and don't end up getting lost in your thoughts. Olena and Vladimir first met as children, long before any of his various career incarnations as an actor, producer, president and war leader. They have always been very different. He loves to perform. She prefers quiet and privacy. He laces his words with emotions and gestures. She comes across as steady and reserved. She rarely gives interviews, but has agreed to meet me to discuss how the months of war have affected her and her family and her husband's transformation into an icon of resistance to Putin's Russia. She was born Elena Kiashko in 1978, in the industrial city of Krivi Ria in central Ukraine. 
Her mother was a head engineer in a factory and her father taught construction at a technical university. They grew up speaking Russian but felt proud of being Ukrainian and when the Soviet Union collapsed, she says the family welcomed Ukrainian independence. I remember a feeling that it was the right thing to do, that we were separate and we have our own culture and language, she says. She and Zelensky were in the same year at school in Krivyria, but in different classes. Even then, he was always joking, and he loved attention. She remembers him performing in the school plays, but they did not speak much. Our classes were rivals. It was like the Montagues and the Capulets. But then we met again in university, and, of course, all that silliness has passed, and you're actually happy to see people you remember from school. So first we started being friends and then started dating, she says. Now that we're off the topic of the war, she has relaxed and is speaking warmly with the occasional smile. During the years they dated, Zelensky and a group of friends had formed a comedy troupe called Kvartal 95, named after one of the districts in Krivyria. They performed in competitions across the former Soviet countries. In 2003, the same year they married, Kvartal started making television programmes. Zelenska began work as a scriptwriter, part of a team drafting comedy sketches Zelensky and others would perform. She continued in this role for years, even at times pitching in with scripts after Zelensky was elected president. What was home life like for a comedy writer and comedy performer? Endless jokes? Yes, endless jokes, but sometimes I get tired of this messing about, and he never does, she says, with an affectionate smile. In her telling, the pre-war Zelensky sounds almost pathologically good-humoured. He would always think of funny things. If we were arguing, I would come to work and be thinking about this argument all day. He'd come to work, turn off the drama switch and turn on the comedy one, and spend the day working hard and then come home in a great mood. I'd be like, why are you not suffering like me? Zelensky went on to play the role of an everyman who becomes president in the television series Servant of the People. And then, at the end of 2018, he announced he would run for president in real life, having registered a party named after his show. Zelenska found out about his decision from the news. He claimed he just forgot to tell her. It seems like a remarkable omission. Was she angry? Amused? Resigned? The whole range of emotions, she says diplomatically. She is clear, though, that she was never keen on the exposure of political life and has minimised public appearances and interviews since her husband became president in his landslide election win in 2019. Indeed, she says one of the few upsides of her wartime isolation and the ban on using her mobile devices or social media accounts was being disconnected from unwanted feedback. You aren't waiting to see what people's reaction will be after every single thing you do, she says. I found this emotionally difficult during the two and a half years before the war. President Zelensky has been through more surprising life twists in the past five years than most people experience in a lifetime.
When I interviewed him in February 2020, he was desperate to change the topic from Donald Trump after spending his first year in office dragged into Trump's impeachment. But he outlasted the Trump drama and he is doing his best to overcome Putin too. Even the president's bitterest political rivals, who feared that a comedy actor was not the right person to take on Putin in Ukraine's hour of need, have conceded that this wartime leadership has been both courageous and inspirational. Zelenska claims she is not surprised by how impressive her husband has been. He's someone who, more than anyone I know, whenever there were situations where everyone says it's impossible, he always saw it through and got it done, and was able to inspire others too. I ask for an example, and she tells a story about how once her writing team had to compose a song for him to sing as part of a sketch. The shooting was the next day, and they had nothing. At 10pm, she went to Zelensky and told him that probably they'd have to abandon the idea of having a song. He said, fine, you go home. And he sat down to write it himself. And two hours later it was done. And it wasn't bad. He just never gives up, even when all around him do. It's hard to take the comparison seriously. Writing a song for a comedy sketch hardly seems like preparation for leading a country through an invasion by the second largest army in the world. But clearly, she is right that something in her husband's character has turned him into an unexpectedly competent wartime leader. Part of it is certainly his communication skills. He remembers texts very quickly and can say them confidently, she says. He knows how to work with cameras. He is not acting, he just has the skills to do that well. For me, I find it incredibly difficult to speak in public. I get stressed every time, but for him, it's natural. Another ingredient is discipline. Because of his jokey manner and her more austere bearing, people often assume that she is the disciplinarian in the relationship, while he is the chilled creative. But actually, discipline is his middle name, she says. The alarm goes off and he gets up, brushes his teeth, gets dressed and leaves, and it takes him five minutes. Whereas I'm rolling about for half an hour, he has these qualities psychologically to withstand stress and to keep discipline. She claims, rather surprisingly, that she has not noticed any difference in his mood over the past months. Does that mean he's bottling it all up? Is all the stress going to take its toll after the war is over? I'm not worried for his psychological health, but his physical health. He always gets ill after difficult periods. He relaxes and then he goes and picks up a virus or something. I am trying to look after him in this regard, but, like all men, he doesn't like to check his temperature or his blood pressure, but I try to get through to him by making a scene. First lady is a strange role, she admits. A position defined by the job of her husband, with no formal power and coming with constant judgment about her looks and dress. Nonetheless, she believes it's worth harnessing the soft power it provides and last year even organised a summit of first ladies and gentlemen in Kyiv. Ten first ladies made the trip including Ermine Erdogan and Michelle Bolsonaro. 
but this year she hopes to repeat the summit in an online format. With so many countries keen to show solidarity to Ukraine, there may be a bigger showing. In recent weeks, Zelenska has been speaking often with some of the contacts she made then, as well as with other first ladies. She first appeared in public 10 weeks after the war started to meet Jill Biden and the pair toured a school in the far west of Ukraine, meeting those who had fled the conflict in the east. It was brave of her to come. She was extremely empathic and very interested in the stories people had to tell, Zelenska says. Other conversations have taken place by telephone. Brigitte Macron has offered to help rebuild a school. Before we meet, she has a video call with Queen Mathilde of Belgium, who is also a psychology professor and has some advice about rehabilitation programs. Ukrainians are not used to asking psychologists for help, Zelenska says. We are liable to ignore depression or anxiety. We need to have a major advertising campaign to tell people that it's not their fault if they need mental help. It's something she was focused on before the war. And while some of her other projects, such as introducing healthier school meals, seem to have become less pressing when survival is at stake for millions of Ukrainians, the issue of access to mental health services has never been more relevant. Compared with many Ukrainians, Zelenska has had it easy over the past months. But the war has taken its toll on the first family too. My son said to me, Mum, you know I just want to see my friends. I haven't seen them for so long. For three months I've been playing only with dogs and bodyguards. Her daughter has kept up with her studies and hopes to start at university in September. But she, like millions of Ukrainians, has missed out on school, with the war coming after two years of Covid disruptions. Every Ukrainian is under a huge psychological burden now, Zelenska says. Half of our population are living apart from their families. Of course, the majority of us have never lived in these conditions before. For now, the focus is on beating the Russians. But when the war is over, there will need to be a major programme to heal the nation. Nobody needs a country that has won, that has fought for its territory, but that is populated by people who can't live, function or bring up their children normally. There are big dangers ahead of us. We've been speaking for more than an hour. And before we finish, I want to go back to those days before the war when American intelligence was making ever more alarmist announcements about Putin's intentions and Zelensky was telling Ukrainians not to panic. Did he feel under pressure in those days? Was he coming home tormented by the feeling that perhaps he should be warning Ukrainians to prepare for war? No, of course not. There was different information from all sides, she says, a little irritably. Of course, nobody shared any military secrets at home with me. The fact that the president and his wife were sleeping at home on the night of the invasion says a lot, though. Did they really not think war was possible, despite all the warnings? Honestly, no. I couldn't believe it would happen. I didn't even have my passport ready. On the 23rd of February, the day before, she remembers she held a meeting in her office with teenagers about mental health. 
It was also Yaroslav's birthday that day, she says. Yaroslav is your son, I ask, momentarily confused. Oh no, that's the bodyguard, she says, laughing and pointing at the burly man in fatigues, who I had forgotten was sitting behind me. I look over, also with a smile on my face. Yaroslav does not smile back. On that last day before the war, she tells me some people in the office were discussing packing emergency suitcases in the event that war really did break out, and she made a mental note to do so the next day. In the end, that's what she did, throwing a single case together while the booms went off outside. Zelenska now feels able to spend some time in Kyiv, but it's far from certain that the president's family is no longer a target for the Russians. When you see the appalling crimes they have committed, you think maybe they really are capable of anything. She is therefore evasive about where she is living now. Of course, she says, she is not able to live with her husband, but at least they now get to see each other. She describes their first meeting after all those weeks in typically understated terms. We hugged, said hi, and asked each other how we were. The children were here and they clung on to him for some time. Now we can see each other and they can physically touch their dad. It makes things a bit easier. Later, as Zelenska poses on the stairs of the administration building, the president materialises, clutching a handful of documents and flanked by soldiers rushing to a meeting. He stops to exchange a few words and gives her a brief kiss. As he pulls away, they hold each other's arms for a moment, and then he is on his way again. These are the sort of fleeting interactions that they have now. We hoped that soon we could see each other more, but for now I don't see this possibility, she says. While Putin's war continues, her family, like millions of other Ukrainian families, is destined to remain split in two. That was Ukraine's first lady, Elena Zelenska, on being Russia's target number two. When you see their crimes, maybe they really are capable of anything. Read by Emma Stannard. We're going to take a short break now. However, we'll be back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, from a walk in the woods at night to exploring a ghostly derelict building or riding a blood-curdling roller coaster, can a dose of fear make you forget your everyday worries? Daniel Lavelle is on a mission to find out whether collecting scary experiences can help him cope with his fear of public speaking. He travels to Blackpool Pleasure Beach in search of roller coaster zen. Read by Walid Akhtar. 50 feet, Danny, Lucy shrieks as we ascend to the top of the big one, the UK's tallest roller coaster. 100 feet, 150 feet, 200, she continues. Okay, I get it, we're high, I reply. Oh God, oh God, oh God, ah! We scream as our carriage reaches the track's apex and plummets back to earth at 70 miles per hour. I have come to Blackpool Pleasure Beach with a friend to try to scare myself happy. Fear is said to be as good for mental well-being as a dose of mindfulness. 
I'm also hoping that exposing myself to acute fear will help me to cope with my terror of public speaking. After we exit the ride, everything appears a little sharper, colours seem brighter, and sounds are crystal clear. Roller coaster zen. One of my best friends is a yoga instructor and highly trained in meditation, says Margie Kerr, the author of Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear, over the phone from Denver, Colorado. And we joke around because we're trying to get to that same state via two different routes. She's going through the focus meditation, and I just scare myself. All of the rumination, all of that internal noise is muted because the body is saying, no, we need to focus our energy and resources on survival. So we're just going to turn down all that inner dialogue and be here in the moment. Kerr is a sociologist and her book is a science travelogue that explores fear and why people pursue it. In it, she rides extreme roller coasters, braves supercharged scare houses, horror-themed walking tours where actors are employed to frighten visitors, stays overnight in an abandoned prison and braves the edge walk at the CN Tower, North America's tallest skyscraper. I grew up a fan of horror movies and haunted houses and was a bit of a thrill-seeker, Kerr says. I think that's what initially got me interested. And then also just trying to understand, why do people like to do scary things? Why do I like to do scary things? Well, oh, so many reasons, Kerr says. There is a physical high, the natural high. People talk about all the endorphins, adrenaline and changes that happen in the body when our sympathetic nervous system increases its activity and circulates all of these different hormones and neurochemicals that, in the right context, can make us feel strong and powerful. These benefits explain why certain therapies try to take people out of their comfort zone by exposing them to things that scare them. Exposure therapy is a psychological treatment designed to help patients confront the fears they have been avoiding in a safe environment. Kerr is working on making such therapies more fun in order to lower the dropout rate, which she says can be as high as 50%. Some therapies take place in virtual reality environments, such as a crowded train filled with hostile passengers in absurd costumes staring judgmentally at the patients. They're not being told to try to calm down. They're being told that they can scream, they can laugh. We start there and then work down to a subway car just full of humans. The idea is that after you do a fun, scary experience, humans should not be as scary in comparison, says Kerr. Context is crucial, as fear and excitement share an identical physiological footprint. The only difference is how we frame experiences in our minds. Being confronted by a ravenous grizzly bear and being spun around on a roller coaster will produce the same chemicals, but they are very different emotional experiences. As long as you get your dose of fear in the right setting, you can reap its benefits. The very intense emotional experiences can bring people closer together, especially if there's already a positive bond between people in groups. It can strengthen that. And we form really strong memories when we're doing something highly emotional, because we want to remember things that hurt us or that make us feel good. Kerr thinks that chronic, everyday fears, health concerns, worries about bills, making a social faux pas, may explain why we seek out more in-your-face threats. I wonder if we sometimes really want that acute threat, because it is satisfying, in a way, to experience the fear, to experience all of that intensity and then relief, so the joy comes after it's over. 
there's just that feeling of the threat has passed, I can relax. The sympathetic nervous system handles the fight or flight response we experience during a threatening encounter and the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for the relief and sense of presence we feel after it has passed. When Kerr braved the edge walk, she leaned back into her harness on the edge of the 553 metre tall building and into the Toronto sky. She experienced her body in a totally new way and became overwhelmed with fear. But that day is now a happy keystone memory for her, one she can draw on in times of stress. I think about that moment and it inspires me. I think it taps into some type of physical memory where I'm just remembering I can do this. And I love having that memory. I wish everybody could have a very intentional memory like that to give them strength. Inspired by Kerr's bravery, I attempt to do as many frightening things as possible in the weeks after our conversation. Unfortunately, there is not enough research into how often one should experience acute fear to get the benefits of which Kerr speaks. But I would recommend doing something that scares you at least once in your life. It may make you feel terrifyingly good. Roller coasters. The UK's tallest roller coaster piques my interest, but ultimately leaves me unsatisfied. Surprise and a sense of jeopardy are more likely to produce Kerr's fear good factor and there is a different ride at the Pleasure Beach better suited to that. Icon. Twists, turns, loops and rolls like a drunken gymnast. It is awful. And excellent. My experience gets off to a bad start. Two staff members manage to convince me that my harness is insecure. One of them struggles to clip me in. But never mind, his colleague is coming over to sort it. He meanders over and barely touches the harness. It's reeked, he says with a wink. And we're off. All the blood leaves my face as Lucy and I hurtle from the platform. I'm going to die, I say, as I feel myself slip in my chair. I scream and scream and scream, which makes Lucy laugh and laugh and laugh. It is Sod's law that the soundtrack to my death is manic laughter. I don't die, of course, and I feel calm when it's all over. But I think a cup of tea would have achieved the same effect. Fear factor, five out of five. Passage del Terror People pay a lot of money for strangers to startle them in the dark, usually in labyrinthine corridors where performers reenact famous scenes from horror films. I chose Passage del Terror, also at the Pleasure Beach. Online reviewers promised terrific acting and big frights, so I feel anxious as Lucy and I enter the dark passage in tandem. To help me achieve maximum fear, Lucy nominates me to lead our cohort. Maybe the actor's timing is off, or the lack of real danger is taking the sting out of everything, but I am completely unmoved. Still, the women behind me got what they paid for. Chills, thrills, adrenaline and screams, followed by hugs and kisses at the end, no doubt when their parasympathetic nervous systems were rewarding their bravery with loving chemicals. Fear factor? Two out of five. Midnight in the Woods the author John York claims that every story, scary story or otherwise, can be reduced to a journey through the woods after dark. So that is what I take, only with a twist. In the middle of my midnight stroll through a slice of the Pennine Edge wood, I decide to sit on a fallen tree trunk and watch a horror film on my phone. It is not lost on me that I am the creepiest thing in the woods at that moment. After the film, as I make my way out through the thicket, I swear I see faces in the darkness. 
My sympathetic nervous system is firing on all cylinders when I finally make it out to a quiet suburban cul-de-sac. Fear factor, 3 out of 5. Climbing Climbing ticks two major fear boxes for me, fear of heights and fear of falling. It is a wet and foggy Saturday morning when I boulder up the side of India's head in Saddleworth, Greater Manchester, which resembles a Native American chief. I am utterly exhausted as I reach the rocks at the top. I have zero climbing experience, but the rocks are about 4.5 metres, 15 foot high, so I don't need a climbing rope, a harness or carabiners. However, I begin to doubt whether this is true as I reach halfway up the rock I've chosen, the chief's nose. I've run out of footholds and handholds, and I am not confident enough to clamber down. So, I'm left with two choices, dropping to the ground or clinging on until rescue comes. I choose the former, and press my torso to the rock face as hard as I can to create as much friction as possible as I slide down and land firmly but safely on my feet, bruising my heels. A small price to pay, because if I had staggered back just slightly, I would have tumbled down Boulder City behind me. I didn't feel any benefits here, just scared and stupid. If I were you, I would find a climbing wall and an instructor. Fear factor, 5 out of 5. Abandoned building. There is a burnt out abandoned mill at the bottom of the bridle path that runs adjacent to my home. It has a haunted Victorian quality to it, especially at night. I'm not scared of ghosts, mainly because they don't exist. But even if they did, what is there to be afraid of? They can't touch you, let alone harm you. The worst thing they can do is startle you and make you question your sanity. Being a ghost must be the worst form of the afterlife. Ghosts can only be seen at night by certain people in old houses and their reason d'etre is scaring silly people. Still, the darkness and Victorian architecture make me feel as though someone is watching us. My brother and I enter what remains of the mill's interior through a rotting wooden door and move steadily under torchlight around rusted, broken looms and displaced flagstones. There is loads of graffiti inside, so we're not the only ones to have come, I say when I feel something tap me on my shoulder. That something turns out to be bat poo, but it doesn't stop me from panicking and fleeing the mill as a colony of bats flutter above. Still, I am buzzing when we make it back to the bridal path. Fear factor, four out of five. That was, I swear I saw faces in the darkness. Can you scare yourself happy? By Daniel Lavelle. Read by Walid Akhtar. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast, Emma Stannard and Walid Akhtar and presented by me, Savannah Oyoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by George Cooper. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Isabel Rugel and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now, but I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get Pet Essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply.